0: This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. The first thing for most people I think would be like, I want a plate of enchiladas, suizas, with beautiful cheese and cream, and this is what I want, right? So, okay, where do I want to eat that? Who's going to eat that with me? Mm -hmm. Who's going to make it? And then you start thinking about ingredients and practicalities, but you have to really, really go through that imagination and an and imaginary place, and then you have to find a, a spot on, in reality where that's going to be viable.
1: I'll never think about Mexican food in the same way after spending time with Barbara talking about her restaurants and her career. Barbara Sibley is one of the earliest authorities and advocates for authentic regional Mexican food in America, and she's a collector of traditional, rare, and ancient Mexican recipes. She's also the owner of the wildly popular New York City restaurant, La Palapa, along with an accompanying taqueria. And she's a consultant on another project, the author of a cookbook on Mexican small plates. She's an artist and poet and an executive chef for one of the most important women's fundraising events in New York. And all of this might have started with her earliest roots in Mexico City when she created her very first recipe at just six years old. Just ahead, you'll hear why opening a restaurant is like a masterclass. The wonder of eating in your own zip code. How Barbara might just be the mother of two different kinds of families. And how she and her sister created a prestigious annual poetry conference in Mexico. In the vast culinary landscape we share we are all carving out a place for ourselves, each of us in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Barbara, it's such a pleasure to be with you. We have so much to talk about. We always do. We've known each other for, I think it's 30 years or so. Yeah. We've both been chefs in uh, in the industry. But you wear so many hats, and I think you're even reaching legend status. You are a restaurateur, you are a chef, you are an activist, you are a poet, you are a mother. Um, I know now that you're the creative director of the Holiday Cocktail Bar, and I definitely want to hear more about that. I haven't gotten a chance to go yet. So you've been around for such a long time. You wear so many hats. How did it all
0: get started? I actually don't know your story. Well, um, I grew up in Mexico. And so that sort of, and you have to sort of understand a little bit about that, what it was like then is that I grew up in a Mexico that was, uh, before nafta um uh, Mex- my father went to mexico he's an engineer um he had to because the country, the economy the economy was so closed every he was uh, doing water treatment plants he needed to train a mexican team and it had to be 51% mexican owned and then my parents expected to move back to the states but they fell in love with mexico so i was born in mexico but it's taken me really quite some time to realize why I'm so Mexican, even though obviously I don't look Mexican, I don't sound Mexican, hmm. but really that childhood was so, um, so different. I it imagine. really was Mexican. I mean, when I see my niece and nephew that are in their 30s, they're not. They're not so Mexican. They're international. They're part of that third generation that people talk about. Well,
1: you know? I meant to say, uh, of the many hats, the fact that you were also really a leader in introducing New York, maybe the country, to authentic regional Mexican food. And right. that is the cuisine of your right. of your restaurant. So I definitely want to talk about that. But let's actually go way back then, Barbara, to the very, very beginning, mm-hmm. to your mother's kitchen.
0: Tell me about
1: who okay. is there with you? All what right. does it look like? What's happening? Well,
0: in this you'd have to almost go even further back, okay. actually, a little bit. <laughs> it's that my mother grew up in the Midwest on a farm during the Depression, mm. a farm that was eight miles from town, mm. uh, where there was not running water. I think she finally told her parents if they, you know... If she still had to come and like pump the water, maybe you know uh, <laughs> she wouldn't like come in anymore. Her 20s. Yeah, it was something <laughs> you know. Anyway, I even remember that well. So, um, so Colin, you know, in terms of cuisine and food, that it really comes from that. Um, there's that's a huge influence. Mm. Uh, the fact that her experience, she, her experience, and so is that whenever we were cooking, there was this uh, connection to really how you make it. And how, where it comes from Mm. sort of way ahead of sort of farm to table, right? This is sort of what I had, but I also had that in Mexico because Mexico was, uh, such a, such a, such a different place in terms of cuisine. Mm -hmm. And so there was, I would say in terms of who I am today, there's like the, so many, you know, there are the influences really come from my childhood. Um, there's the fact that, uh, I was a very shy kid. Super, super shy. It would be very hard to imagine that today. It and is I hard do to so imagine, imagine that. But, <laughs> but um, I was always most happy at any gathering to go to the kitchen and be in the kitchen. Mm. So I really grew up. And I'm also a person that can remember the first avocado I tasted and asking the cook in Spanish, ¿Cómo se llama? What's this called? Mm. I must have been... Th- Three,
1: two so three. you had so, I mean, a cook I really when you were growing uh, up. You, well, in that, Mexico, you always common? had help.
0: But if we were at a friend's house, a mm-hmm. lot of people had cooks. Um, you know, it's not uncommon. It was just you know, every, you know, people was. had that, and also even in Mexican cuisine, the even in convent kitchens, they had cooks. So a lot of Mexican cuisine actually comes from that meeting together with other women in a kitchen. Mm. So. I think that that's really also why I'm so interested in the convent cooking of Mexico. But there is that thing of like, who do you meet in the kitchen? So when you ask that about like, well, who was in your mother's kitchen or what was your mother's kitchen like, um, there are a lot of different influences. And then there's the kitchens of my mother and my mother's friends. The other thing is that Mexico, even though it's an incredibly machista country, yes, it is also a country where women... You, I grew up with Frida Kahlo. It was not unusual. Mm, that, the, what what that, do you mean by that? I mean right. that that a, my mother was a painter. I grew up with other writers, painters, women who were doctors. You just had like really um, – I could also sort of imagine myself. So in terms of being a woman and a leader, there was also that. My mother was part of starting Planned Parenthood in Mexico way back um, in the day. Um So it was a very interesting, interesting childhood in that I was around a lot of artists, a lot of writers, and and a lot of great cooks. Yes. Um, But also, being Mexican is relevant because in Mexico, there isn't that division. There isn't that, like, you're a doctor or an artist. There are many doctors who are artists, there are Mm. many poets who are architects, there are many. Painters who are engineers—it's there isn't that thing that you have, especially in New York, where like, oh, what's your day job? There's no feeling of that. It's sort of there's like a more organic flow in terms of who who you are and what you can do. It's not it's not so divided. And I think so. I do think that that uh, has really shaped me. It sounds you know?
1: so holistic and so beautiful. Uh, I think it's one of the yeah. reasons I really like to travel so <laughs> much because it, it this feels. Um, maybe more like what I've experienced in Italy or Spain—that uh, all of the humanities belong to all of us, and we all get to live them. Right. And cooking is absolutely part of that. Yeah. But you know, you said that uh, Mexico is kind of a machismo um, in uh, society, and yet what I'm really feeling from you is the power of women. In in that world. And, well, for, and your own yeah, mothers.
0: Absolutely. Power. And so in, in Mexico, traditionally the heads of the kitchen were the mayoras. Um although I said it when I opened my one of my restaurants, like, you know, ten or fifteen years ago. Um, I said, Well, as soon as people are really making a lot of money because even you know, Mexican food in New York really was really Pioneered by women, yes, and I always said well, as soon as, as soon as there's a lot of money to be made, we'll start to see that gender gap, and sure enough, uh it's definitely happened, but no, Mexico is just um also there's just such a variety of food, and I think that I'm a person that you know I love to eat, I think that also has <laughs> to really be here. you can't talk about any of this without uh sort of knowing that because um I love to eat. I was very homesick being in New York. So opening a Mexican restaurant was was a natural. Well, let's put some days to this because –
1: so when you talk about growing up in Mexico, where were you actually? Which city or town were you in and what decade? Okay. So
0: so this is the 60s. I was uh, born in Mexico City. I lived in the south, Uh, if anyone's traveled to Mexico City. So if you've gone to Diego Rivera's studio, I grew up two blocks uh, from there. I knew a family, uh, the, the parents were, they were my childhood friends and the parents were tapestry makers. They were oh. artists. They lived in that studio, which is now a museum. But I also grew up two blocks from the San Angelin, which is one of the most beautiful restaurants in Mexico. And I grew up going to Alex Gardini's to have Caesar salad. And he's the son <laughs> of, I mean, not really? the son of, the brother of Cesar Gardini. So there was a lot of food and restaurants as well. Um, so, so this is living so this history is this living history. So if <laughs> any, you know, so if you've seen Roma, the, the film Roma, did. it's you're seeing my childhood. Wow well. in, in a in a sense. So yeah, so those so then I come I was uh came to New York in the late seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sister was at NYU. I had gone to boarding school at an arts boarding school for like two years in Michigan, felt incredible. Culture shock, really. I imagine. And when I came to New York, and everything was in English and in Spanish, I was like, "Oh, this is a city I can live in." <laughs> um, so,
1: you, I, which language always, do you think in, Barbara? Both. Which language both. do you cook in, Barbara?
0: <laughs> both, with a little French. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, different parts of your life. I mean, I would say my first language is is both. I mean, my most comfortable speaking with people who are bilingual and going back and forth, because some words are just more delicious in the other language. Ah, nice.
1: I only speak one. You know, I studied French for a little bit, but I often think about how which are my thinking and my life and my cooking and everything would be if I had the ability to
0: uh, speak another language. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that my parents made sure that we had pretty good English. We went to a little tiny, tiny British school. But it also meant that I went to school with thirty different nationalities. Mm. Um, Again, so you're a citizen
1: of the world, and I yeah, think as a New different. Yorker, we tend to be very, even though we think we're very sophisticated, we're also very myopic, mm-hmm. in, and uh, you know, have not had these kinds of experiences that you're talking about. Yes
0: and no. I mean, when I think about my neighborhood in in the East Village, I mean, you could, I you could go to eighteen countries within a ten block radius or something like that at least. <laughs> Was that then or still now? Still or maybe now. more now. Still now, maybe more now. I mean, I think there's Mexican, French, uh, Egyptian, uh, there's three or four different areas of China. There's Australia, there's Persia, you know, Persian cuisine, so it's Iranian. Uh, that's becoming really popular right now, too. Yeah, Korean. Well tell I mean that's dance. just like off the never mind, Japanese, like how, you know, 20 different iterations of specialized Japanese cuisine. All in this, all all in the East Village. all in the East Village. I don't really, without going above 14th Street. Wow. And all delicious, delicious. So tell us
1: about La Palapa and exactly where it is in the East Village and what the restaurant represents, how you created the menu, what are the dishes you can't take off, even though you've been (laughs) in business for so many years.
0: Well, okay, So, so I was living in the East Village uh had been working for many years uh, at sort of a Tex-Mex Mexican place and cooking for our, for the staff behind the scenes and then running a gastropub and also cooking for the staff behind the scenes where we'd cook <laughs> for ourselves. Uh, and then we started catering a, in Mexican and then had an idea to – had several different business plans and uh, was walking by this restaurant and it was out of business and so uh, my partner uh, Marguerite Malfi, who was my partner back then, who was no longer there. But uh, we decided to open the restaurant and um, we had several concepts, but really uh, the Mexican was what was the best for that. And really for me then, it was uh, ended up being the concept that was really based on my childhood. So mm. La Palapa is what I was homesick for and what I felt that I couldn't get in New York And um, what was happening in New York at that time in terms of at that that time, there were a few a couple of places. Mm -hmm. Um, I sort of for me, I felt like, well, if I wanted to have enchiladas, I had to go here. And if I wanted to have guacamole, I had to go there. And maybe around the corner, everything was awful, but their beans were good. (laughs) (laughs) Their beans are still good. Um, So it was really, really based on. what I was what I was home for, homesick for. So it is regional, because I traveled extensively as a kid. Uh, so are all the regions represented on the no, menu in some not, way? Not no, not all, not no. all regions. I would How many say, are there, Barbara? You know, I don't know much. Well, there's about like 20 or... – Mexico is 26 states, but it has everything from tropical rainforest to you know mountain desert and everything in between. And every time, you know, there's such a huge, huge variety. I mean, you could I could never get bored. A lot of people think about fusion. I'm like, even just sticking with what's traditional, I could never get bored. It's just, you know, it's so, um, so many varieties of chilies, so many varieties of, you know, of, of beans and of corn. And I mean, just, just ingredients, just exploring ingredients alone, you could just go forever. Yeah. It sounds like that. But looking at a dish, could you more or less know where, what region it's from? right away there are you know there are every there are the regions have iconic dishes and i would say that on my menu i do have some of those um some i've had to really go back and research um but uh there are generalities in that flour tortillas and and cheese and melted cheese is more common from the north of mexico because that's where they grow the wheat um, See. You know, the central part of Mexico tends to have a lot of cuisine uh, that's, I, I, it's the milpa. Milpa is a cornfield. So you would have the cornfield and then everything that grew around it. So you may have um, beans and squash and chilies growing around the edges of the cornfield that mm-hmm. you're cultivating. Um, and you may also have grasshoppers. Yes, I know like they that. Are right. So, so you cuisine. could end up having a whole cuisine just based on those those items. Talk about eating in your own zip code, huh? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Everything. Uh so yeah, they're definitely you can tell. There are certain areas that have like, you know, Hidalgo, Tabasco that have incredible wild mushrooms in the rainy season. Mm. Uh, you have la coche. You have, so you have sort of the Which corn is the fungus. coche mm-hmm. is the it's fungus on the corn. On the corn. Which right. is a delicacy. Yes. It's basically a fungus, a mushroom spore travels down the silk of the corn mm. and each corn kernel becomes a mushroom. And it's, I always say it's the marriage of the flavors of uh, mushroom and corn by, you know, perfect marriage in nature. Because if you like those two flavors, cause a lot of people are like, oof. In the states, it's a it's considered a plague. Uh,
1: oh, oh, that's so funny! I'm wondering the first delicacy. person who dared to to eat this. But I, the few times I've had it, I've absolutely, it's, you know, loved it. But love it's, it's not available. Ones. I would imagine it's um, hard to get. Or, it's very or hard to it's very hard
0: or... to get. I've had uh, some different years. An organic farmer uh, in Massachusetts growing it. They in in trying to eradicate it, they discovered how to uh, inoculate. The corn with it, which is that's how they, they take literally like a little a spray of the spores and spray it on the silk and then the spores go down. So it's silk. actually being manufactured. It, well, now it's being grown uh, more, but that's it's- that's the better word, grown, yeah, manufactured. Grown. <laughs> uh, but um, but it's still something that hap- you know happens naturally.
1: So you opened your first restaurant. It's 15, 20 years ago? Almost,
0: yeah. So in 2000. In 2000.
1: So, wow. We're, we're coming up. Oh, I hope you're going to be... have a
0: nice big party. And <laughs> oh, I all of I keep thinking about what I'm going to do. And so, anyway. Yeah. But
1: What was the experience like then? You know, I'm a cook, but yeah. I have never opened a restaurant. And I think it's absolutely daunting, the whole right. idea of it, especially then, Barbara,
0: because being a woman chef and being in New York, oh.
1: what were the challenges? Well,
0: well. On one hand, I was very fortunate to have worked for Abe Liebaal and Rudy Mosney um, when they opened Telephone Bar, and also La Pal- uh, uh, some Mex- other Mexicans. That they opened a lot of places. They opened a nightclub in the meatpacking district way ahead of time. So I had been through a few openings with them, but there's nothing like opening. <laughs> it's it's, and I don't care how many times I've done it. Opening is still. There's it's just it's it is tremendous. Well,
1: it's interesting because I'm thinking about you and New York and restaurants and businesses and also uh, thinking of you as an artist and your mother's daughter. And Mm -hmm. she's an artist uh, and how this all comes together, because people who are listening to us speak really want to know how they can enter this industry in this in this world coming up you'll hear the nitty gritty of what it's like to open a restaurant in New York and be successful and to last the length of your lease which is our definition of success in in a New York restaurant you'll also hear about how barbara's trajectory makes her one of the most unique women in New York's food world Darkness. Here's a cooking tip to share. This is a crazy great idea for pasta, and you can use it for any favorite pasta dish. It's a way to add crunch and flavor. Really simply, I take a small bag of pork rinds and crush them. I add an equal amount of grated Parmesan cheese and a little grating of lemon zest. You can also add a touch of garlic if you'd like. This adds so much flavor and crunch to any dish. From my kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. In okay, to the nitty-gritty of actually opening uh, a restaurant. So there's money to think about. There are banks, there are loans, there are mortgages. There's finding a kitchen staff. There's training uh You know, service, help, all of these things. If you can just give us an idea, if you were to have
0: a checklist, maybe of of what to do. Right. Well, as I said, um, there it really depends where you're opening, right? So, everybody always says location, location, location. But that also means that um, while you're planning and dreaming, Mm. and that's what you have to start with, right? You have to think about your dream. Now, I will add one small caveat. It's very important to separate your dream where it is for your where you want to dine and business. Um, there are wonderful restaurants it, in my past. I, I started out as at working at La Tulipe, which is an amazing restaurant. Was La Tulipe a business model that I felt that I could follow? Not really. Uh, very, you know, I saw I saw what it was to do that on that scale. And so you have to think about your scale. So as you're dreaming, it's really like a push and pull between the creativity because you're Mm. you know, a restaurant is a factory (laughs) and a home. Right. And everything happens in real time. Mm. So nothing every, everything and with perishables. <laughs> so <laughs> and food um costs, right. so right. So you do, so you know you, you it's really a push and pull between the business and the business and art business and art business and art but you have to be creative. So it is important I, that when people come to me and say they want to open a restaurant I always say like okay is this your ideal place that you would like to dine or is this a business looking for spaces. So in in outside of New York City you have your idea, you find a space, it's quite simple. In New York City, every space is so uh, different and so mm-hmm. unique that what you what works on one corner is not going to work on another corner, even if it's a great concept. It is so quirky uh, that you have to have some flexibility. Uh, you ha- can't be just sometimes things look great on the inside but the block isn't quite right or there's something right next to you and this is perfect and you realize you know i always say new york how many frozen yogurt stores do we need um so it's like you know there's so there's a lot of things to understand about that we could get even, you know, when you're talking about that sort of real estate part of it, we could mm-hmm. get even deeper. But so there's just location. in terms of the conception, right? You're So yes. you're thinking about you have to plan. You have to make a business plan. I always tell everyone to write a business plan. So for opening, I had written several business plans that were bad, terrible business plans. <laughs> uh, I had, you know, I actually had one investor finally say, like, come back to me when – Come back to me. You're asking how I got the money. Come yes. back to me when you have something real, right? And this was what was off about it was the uh, oh, just the it numbers just was didn't work. Empty. It w- just not even the numbers. I think it just was kind of empty. Um, mm. You and then so then when you're looking, it just didn't have enough, you know, substance to it. <laughs> it was you know, it was your first the first business plan. There really doesn't exist, for example, software to write a really good restaurant business plan. Interesting. So there's an opportunity for someone out there. Yeah, I've thought about it. But it's part of the reason, maybe now, you know, with apps and things like this, but it's so complex. I really, the first thing for most people I think would be like, I want a plate of enchiladas, suizas, with beautiful cheese and cream. And this is what I want, right? So, okay, where do I want to eat that? Who's going to eat that with me? Mm. Who's going to make it? And then you start thinking about ingredients and practicalities. But you have to really, really go through that imagination and an and imaginary place. And then you have to find a, a spot on, in reality right. where that's going to be viable and, and then- not just be nice. Otherwise, stay home and cook and have fabulous dinner parties. <laughs> and But uh, there is a difference, and it is hard work. You have to really love to troubleshoot because there are – different so you're never it's never boring every day is so. every different. day is different every day is you know another challenge every day is uh, you know is a mix of the sublime and the <laughs> and maybe the ridiculous, and, the, the ridiculous <laughs>
1: and did you have partners in um in the more metaphoric sense to help you realize actualize your dreams so well that would for, it was really role. in terms
0: mm-hmm. of in terms of my marriage it's just a, you know i i I'm very fortunate to have a husband who worked in the restaurant business and customer service for many years. Perfect. So he understands and respects what I do. So he knows. And he's also one of those amazing people that the the more success I have, the more happy he is, Mm. you know, which is not always the case. With couples, you know, sometimes that's, there can be sort of jealousies and things. Yes, um, that's always so. Been my if, yeah, so if I'm like, love. oh, I'm going to go talk to Rosie, he'd be like, great. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so so supportive and also practical. I say he also comes into the restaurant and he's great eyes and ears. He's like, oh, the music, oh, the lights, um, but very important because if you get. Uh, It's 24-7 when you own a small business, any small business, but a restaurant in particular. If I get a call for a VIP at 10 o'clock at night and I say I'm popping down, he's fine with it. If I say it's 3 o'clock in the morning and a pipe burst, he's fine with it. If I say I'm running late because I really had to have a heart-to-heart with one of my employees, you know, he's fine with it. So you you're, uh, really, you're the mother of two
1: families aren't you? I know you oh, have yes, several absolutely, children. Absolutely. And uh and then you have all the children in your many businesses. But Barbara, I just want to be clear. What are how many do you have? You're working on lots of different things. So you have Lapalapa Lapa, which
0: is t- so, tell me the address. So Lapalapa so Lapa is at uh 75 St. Mark's Place. Yes. Uh it's in a great space there in the building that W.H. Auden lived for 30 years uh-huh. and Trotsky had his printing press his first exile there. Well, there's a uh, connection with Frida Kahlo, right? So there's a total, <laughs> yeah, connection with Frida Kahlo and Mexico and great ghosts. And so we have a great Dia de los Muertos. Um, <laughs> what is that, Barbara? Day of the Dead. Uh, oh, yes, of course. The Day of the Dead Festival. So we, we always have a lot of offerings and have, you know, great uh, poet and writer uh, themed drinks and food sometimes. Um, different years. And then, but... Um, so it's in the heart of the East Village. It's on a residential part of Saint Mark's, uh, and I think it's a must it's for a anyone coming to New York to, to go it's there, a great neighborhood. It's wonderful. Uh, I'm really lucky to be there. I love the East Village. Uh, in terms of my life, the the people in the neighborhood are amazing. It really is like a village. It's it's wonderful. It's a it's it's very much a community, and having a restaurant, you're. On the ground floor of that community, you know, you have a responsibility. You're right there. Um, and you're so open for lunch and dinner. Open seven for lunch and dinner, week. brunch on the weekend, seven days, closed just maybe Thanksgiving and Christmas Day and possibly Christmas Eve, depending on how tired everybody is. <laughs> <laughs> Usually we're open, but this sometimes if the if the staff needs a rest. Is most of your kitchen staff there
1: from the very beginning?
0: A lot, lot. A lot. A and lot that says are. so much, Barbara, that your A lot um, are. And Either I'm you just incredibly, I don't say this lightly, but it is an incredible blessing to have them all. They are amazing. I have incredible people working for me. I, it is one of my biggest perks, I have to say, that I'm able to choose who I work with. I mean, that's really such an amazing thing. You get all day in and day out, I get to choose to be with amazing people. You know, And you learn and, from and each other wonderful, all wonderful, the time. Always, yeah. So
1: what are the few dishes you can't take off the menu? And I happen to know that you are also... Very knowledgeable about drinks and have really introduced us to
0: uh, tequila-based drinks and agave. Uh, people like an arrachera. One of the things I can't take off is an arrachera, just a skirt steak. There was that word, arrachera. Nobody. It's a very Mexico City word. It's very like, you know, the cut, the actual cut in, Me- in in Mexico and in Spanish. And now you'll see it on a lot of things. You'll see duck with mole. I'm, you know, nobody did that. There's a a few things that are very central to New York City Mexican cuisine. That, that was I, yours. That were mine. <laughs> okay, so I really it's very w- curious. It's I... very funny to go somewhere and and just feel like you know what you have, what I've done, and there are other chefs that have done that as well. There's just part have become just part of the vocab, of the culinary vocab of the city. Uh, it's that. Is it's really darn interesting. exciting.
1: So duck with mole
0: would be yeah, one. duck with mole. The skirt steak, and how was
1: that prepared?
0: Well, it's a tequila marinated arrachera mm. skirt steak with uh, uh, grilled spring onions and like a beans, you know, sort of charro beans, which are like bacon and jalapeños and cilantro beans. Uh, it was, uh, you know, a, a really favorite dish of mine. And uh, you see, just even just seeing how things are described. You know, it's part of everybody breathing this, you know, breathing the same air, but it's very curious. One of the things like in masa, masa is like pasta, or tortillas are like pasta, right? It's just the shape, you name something based on the shape. So just like a fusilli is the same as a linguini, like a tlacoyo, a quesadilla, a tortilla, a chalupa. They're all different. They're all the sun shape. They're all just named by the shape. Ah, I I miss. I use the word chalupa, (laughs) but I used a different shape. But in New York City, anytime I see a chalupa, it's always the shape that I put the name. That incorrect. This incorrect. Not not quite correctly because it was. I just made a different shape and called it a chalupa. Usually, it's like a long thin boat. I did a little round boat, and now everywhere in New York, they're all round. (laughs) So it's it's just sort of silly stuff like that. It's a silly, but it's not, and it's not. But it's, but it's. I'm fascinated because I am also. I am. I don't. I studied anthropology, so I'm very interested in how cultures develop. I mean, that's really one of the things that I love to see, and it's part of what I love about Mexican cuisine. Uh, You know, they just Mexicans always had a, a knack for take. You know, finding the delicious. So when tamarins arrived in Mexico from India, or uh, mangoes, you know, you associate mm. different things with Mexican cuisine, but they were like, yeah, we'll take that, thank you. <laughs> or cheese, you know, or flour tortillas making. Or crepes when the French came. What's a crepe but another tortilla? Tortilla. Absolutely. So you have a lot of crepes in Mexican cuisine.
1: Well, you know, you're a poet as we discussed and you run this wonderful San Miguel Poetry Festival in San Miguel, Mexico. I had the pleasure of going uh last January and I will never forget the experience. But I'm interested, as you know, in the connection between poets and chefs and how they use language. And uh, I'm even hearing that now about your naming the chalupa, one thing, and now it's sort of become something else. And everyone's been, I wasn't going to say stealing it, but I'll say borrowing it. Or in the poetry world, to um, use someone else's words or ideas is actually flattering. As long as you say after. The poet's right, name, right. so all of these other chefs should be saying
0: after Barbara Sibley <laughs> <laughs> for these. Dishes. That would be fun. I do. I I have done that on my menus. Well, that's um, very respectful. Uh, yes. I you know I think that it's yeah. I think that the provenance as uh, to me the provenance is fascinating. It is right.
1: fascinating. And it used to be very, very important and not so much anymore because of the Internet and people just right. kind of borrowing and not even understanding that ideas do come from some place. Absolutely. And very often they are Absolutely. totally original work. Absolutely.
0: And, um, and also, you know, just when you're talking about that or copyright, you know, there's really not much you can do. No. You know, and, once and you cook it, someone only needs to change one chili or change one ingredient. That's right. So there's no – there isn't – it's actually – Harder in restaurants than it is in uh, in writing. That's right. In terms of copywriting, you've really nothing you can do. You just enjoy it. Now, for me, it's a challenge. I just feel like, well, great. I'm flattered, and I just keep creating. But there are things that I can't change. Like you're just going back to that. There's the dishes, like the enchiladas, the moles. The um, uh, there are you know certain dishes, that it's hard. We really have a lot of untouchables. And partly because... I love this word. Untouchables. Yeah. yeah, Can't be touched. They have to stay there. And partly because really we've been there for so long and people come back. And I think it's very important that people know that they come back to where why they came back. You know, if someone comes to me and says, and they're having dinner and they're like, what should I have? I, I was really craving your enchiladas verdes. And... And to that is merdes? verdes. So verdes, green sauce, green and, you know, sauce. in a green sauce. Very simple, delicious. And they say, oh, well, chef, you know, what should I have? I was like, what brought you here? That's really what I asked oh, first. Oh, this is wonderful. Because that's what, why they're there. And I'm like, if that's what brought you here, that's what you should have. Yes. You know, something they read about. Or yeah, they because had sometimes before. people think, oh, it's the owner, it's the chef. I should, oh, they should give, you know, I say, I'm happy to curate a meal for you. But mm. if that's what brought you here, you know, have, you know, have that. And of course they are all my, the, not only do I have my own you know, flesh and blood children, and my restaurant children, but all of the dishes are also my children, and my, the recipes are also my children. And
1: then maybe your know? you so returning customers, become they as are well. too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: that too. Oh, do you have a big family? And you, it's can all fun. Handle it's all it good. so well. It's all good. Um,
1: so you have Lapa Lapa. You have the Holiday Cocktail Lounge. What is that? And I just read
0: somewhere that that was voted like the best bar in New York. Well, so. The Holiday Cocktail Lounge has the 50th liquor license after Prohibition. So it's been there. It was definitely a speakeasy. There are – so just to give a little background, uh, I had lived above – it's next door to Lapa Lapa. I had gone there when I was in my – you know, in the crazy young days. Um, It had been owned by a Ukrainian family for like 45 years. The father passed. The sons sold the building. I lived in the building. I met the new owner I said if you need any help let me know. Yeah. He called me up. It was this great guy, uh Rob, like he's an incredible innovator uh, you know, amazingly creative uh snack maker at this right now in his life. Uh he makes vegan robs. It's a great snack. Um but so he said he said I'm going to own a building and a bar in three days. Will you help me? And it was the (laughs) It's been a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience. Because because of his commitment to saving the bar, we were able to save the bar even though basically it had to be gutted because there were no beams, like the sisters of the Mm. sisters. I mean, it was a 150-year-old building. It had been quite neglected, Uh, some crazy things of neglect in terms of the building. And so... He, uh, you know, he thought he hit a turnkey, and I said, "Sure, I'll help you, you know, for a short time, whatever, because being in the neighborhood, and if you need help." And it turned into like a four-year renovation project. There were a lot of challenges because a bar, you know, just a bar, late nights. I was like, "Oh my gosh, here I go again!" Uh, <laughs> after I had consciously That's- planned not to do that at La Palapa, there I was back in the late-night bar world. But, um, but it's great. It's been it's been an amazing creative experience. And uh, very different. And so I always believe like you should say yes. I mean, that's, I think, why I end up doing so many things is that really, you know, if you're able to say yes, I mean, you have so many new experiences that you don't know where they're going to take you.
1: Well, Barbara, I think that might be one of the most gorgeous pieces of advice that you might give a young woman or young man entering this field today, yeah. or maybe just a life in general kind yeah. of comment. <laughs> and, and to encapsulate it, it really is just say yes. Right. Take advantage yeah. of every opportunity that comes your way. Yeah. What I hear a little bit differently from you, though, is that you have also created so many opportunities for yeah. yourself and also for others. So just to um, kind of summarize for a second before we move on, but your project. So you have the restaurant, you are a creative director, a consultant to the Holiday Cocktail Lounge, and you're also an author. Mm-hmm. And uh this is something else that you I am not sure I realized you were such a, a visionary and innovator but your uh book and please pronounce it for me anti- antojitos Antojitos yeah. uh so these are Mexican small plates and I believe you were right. the first one to also
0: write a book about that right yeah so um I I mean I just there's you know I like talk about the bilingual uh life but the word antojo means craving, but it's even – it's like a – it's a word that's even better than craving. It just means like it can be like, you know, uh, it sort of has a nostalgia, you know. So I know like Diana Kennedy calls them little whims because that's what they tend to be, sort of small plates. But to Mm -hmm. me, I, you know, I rarely take issue with what anything Diana says because she's so, so thorough. But to me, a whim sort of describes the size of it but it doesn't describe the craving the the mm. the desire to have to have a need fulfilled so an antojito can be like a little nibble or you can just have so many nibbles that you've had a wonderful meal so um so that's what antojitos is all about a lot of my menu is antojitos um people love, love and it's the, and and so it's uh was really fun. It's been really fun to write the cookbook and to teach the cookbook, which is mm. something totally new. I didn't you know, a lot of uh why people get in the restaurant business is you like to share, right? People yes. love to share. There it's inc- and sharing the difference between working in a restaurant and sharing your own creation is wonderful. Uh it's really a different experience. But the cookbook was just another way to share and it's and it's been really wonderful i would love to write another cookbook i have one that i'd like to do i've just been really busy can you share what cool. it is or is it a secret it's no it's it sort of has to do with with more like breakfast mexican breakfasts and Ooh, things that like that oh that sounds very very good yeah
1: so thank you and coming up we're going to hear about your personal cravings a legacy recipe that i know that you have brought to share to talk a little bit about the women who have really been inspiring in your life and just to chat a little bit more. And the key to the garden of fulfilled desire
0: reached by a road
1: Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosangold.com. Barbara, we're definitely going to talk about a legacy recipe that, that you brought to share, but I'd like to go back again to your childhood kitchen in Mexico what does it look like who was there tell me a food memory uh what was the name of the cook I know you talked about your curiosity when you saw your first avocado just what did you eat for breakfast I mean
0: I'm just so interested in other people's cultures yeah so okay so (laughs) let's see I'm nine months old or something uh the, the the house is a big house uh that has a kitchen sort of in two parts separated with glass um, bricks. And uh, there was a woman called Chona, who was my nanny and my cook. And um, she was never able to have children. Mm. And so was we were surrogates to each other as well. Um, this is like Roma, the movie. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. Um, so... And yeah, so Chona, um, I remember avocados, we would walk to the convent and in Mexico, and I have that feeling that feel it was, you know, it was all cobblestones and you have that feeling of your arm is held high. Do you know that? Can you recall like being a kid yes. and that feeling of your arm is held high mm. as you walk? And we would walk to the convent and in Mexico, uh, the host is candy so you could buy go to the convent and the little door would open and you would get the bags of all of the leftovers from when they stamp out the round hosts and that would be a snack so and it was that candy. Would, and it was it was it was considered a snack I mean Mexico you have lots of weird snacks we could have a whole conversation <laughs> on what constitutes an antojo and a snack right so you have so I grew up with this an antojo for that taste of the host because in Mexico you could buy the, the it was bags just a plastic bag full of all the bits um oh. then you would have uh people come by and sell um candied peanuts and things like that. There was a lot of it was still Mexico City was small towns that were sort of engulfed by the city. So mm-hmm. you still had a lot of walking ambulantes, the so walking the knife grinder, the you know, the person selling bird seed, the different things. You know, they all had their own called bread. Um so I would have a bolillo. With avocado, so I believe it's like a soft roll. So when people talk avocado toast, and oh, you have avocado toast on your menu, I'm like, oh, I mean, I've got avocado on bread my whole life. Um, and so a lot of simple things. I remember, you know, she made like a gratin of cauliflower that was amazing. I mean, oh. the strange things that you have in your life, right? Uh, Just who knows where she learned that. I remember having like a tamarind (laughs) sauce um, going, you know. So it was a a great variety going to – my father believed that we should know where he worked. So we ended up traveling with him a lot. So as a little kid, we would go to Tampico and have these little teeny baby, baby sweet shrimp Mm. or go to Cihuatanejo and have these special red clams. So a lot of this sort of very early food is very home-based but it's also about traveling in Mexico – uh, going to see mines, going to see a lot, you know, have a lot of different experiences as well as growing up in the, in. for example, I was like the adopted daughter in a in South Indian household. Mm. That So I grew up with her mother grating chutneys on a, I don't know if you've ever seen it. A it's stone? like a little footstool. No, yes. it's like a little footstool where you grate the coconut for the chutney um, and wearing saris. So there sort of ends up being like the sort of in very... Different and you know, I can remember very much where I had these things all these this different food, um, food and place and memory, food and, place yes. and memory. So, all of these are really, really apart. Like, I think I wrote my first recipe when I was six, my mother found it. Oh, and it's what basically, was that? it's basically some kind of a it's called little milk, and it's basically some strange bechamel. I mean, all I can think it ends up tasting like some kind of a bechamel of some kind, but it was and like it's called milk, little milk, little milk. <laughs> Barbara, I think this is the name of your cookbook coming up. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> That's idea. Wonderful. That's a great idea. Um, I also remember oh, I loving food so much that I dropped like a 2-quart jar of raspberry jam right on my toe when I was about 4. <laughs> Broke were my you toe. sneaking it? <laughs> I think I I think so. Actually, <laughs> without a doubt. Whoops! I was like, I want the jam, and it fell on my foot, broke my toe. Oh. So yeah, so, you know, And we had an avocado tree in our yard and a mm. grapefruit tree, and um, there were so there was a lot of you know. And then d- sun drying chilies. We would sun dry chilies on the roof, and there was a you know. So it's just a lot. Of, so that sort of gives you a sense of where. the the sensory part of why I love to do this comes from.
1: It is really making me swoon just to hear
0: (laughs) these beautiful stories. So in your
1: remarkable career as a restaurateur, a chef, a mother, a poet, an artist, an activist, you are also a philanthropist and you've made such a commitment to being part of charities and women's organizations and really giving back and paying back an industry that I guess has been really uh, meaningful for you. I have had the pleasure of coming to an event that you are in charge of, and it's remarkable, and it's called SHARE, and it's for women who have uh, suffered with cancer. But your production is so amazing, and you have many important women chefs come to work with you. Tell me more about how this happened and what your responsibility and role is. And I have this gorgeous vision of you cooking last year with your daughter. And um, it's just one of the most
0: uplifting events I I go to. Right. So SHARE is an organization uh, that supports women with cancer. It's all volunteers. It's I think over 40,000 women now are served. Uh, I have been, so I didn't start it, but um, I've been doing it for about 10 or 12 years and I'm Thrilled and honored to be the executive chef last year and this year. And their uh, main fundraiser is this amazing dinner cooked all by women chefs. So it's 20, 30 women chefs, mixologists, everything in between. And um, it's delicious, first of all, always very important. <laughs> and try, you know, raise between, you know, half a million, three quarters a million dollars that is essential to this organization. So – but twenty to thirty women chefs in New yeah. York come out to cook this
1: food, and and there are a thousand people there. Right, it's a great so the generosity great night. of spirit,
0: of work, of just pure food cost is it's extravagant. It's extravagant, and it's and it's wonderful, and it's really really a great community. It's you know really as I said, it's you know it's a great organization to support and it's a great way to do it. It's it's So who's it's really on your fun. list this year? And what's the mandate? Hey, will you come and cook for a 1000 people and Basically, well, <laughs> I I we don't have the final list yet. It's it's uh not till uh September. So, but we will it'll be coming out soon and we'll let you know. But you know, usually uh a lot and then the thing that's fun is that uh every chef has a celebrity uh sous chef. Oh, that's right. So, it's been fun to have. I've had, you know, Sarah Moulton and Lourdes Castro and uh uh ruby d was there one year before she passed i mean really wonderful 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 group of people yeah it's really women uh, helping women women helping women it's fantastic and um it's a great organization anyone who uh is a cancer survivor who has breast or ovarian cancer uh it's uh, share for cancer support um as opposed to share our strength which is the food um justice organization and um, it's in many languages and they also offer support to caregivers which I think is very important very to important. remember that the caregivers also need care absolutely uh, because to be able to do the work that they do so it's it's a fantastic organization um, but also I've, I've also been uh, involved with the New York Women's Culinary Alliance and La Dame de Schofier, Which so the Culinary Alliance uh, is a very vibrant networking organization here in the tri-state area La Dame de Schofier is an international uh, organization that uh, supports uh, young women entering uh, the food world through scholarships exactly it's wonderful mentorship and scholarships and it's been really an honor, and I think it's interesting that even though we think, in this day and age, do we really need these organizations? We definitely do. We definitely do. The the we need the community and we need the support, and I think that um, they they really serve an important role, uh, just in terms of helping people once again in this industry find a way to make their their dreams reality. I think for one another and for young young people coming into the business. Uh, this this particular event, uh, under your guidance, really goes above and beyond. So what? tell
1: me about a legacy recipe.
0: Well, I always say, like, you just never know when I, deciding – and partly it does come from being so busy. I was trying to choose. I brought, like, four different things, and I was like, why do I want to choose this recipe? And in this conversation, I've discovered why, because the unconscious mind. Um, so I'm choosing – what I've brought to share with you is – Uh, a braised uh, lamb barbacoa Mm. it was a dish of my mother's so this dish uh, she would use lamb shoulder I like to use shanks Um, and it's a very simple dish you take a chile ancho in Mexico barbecue it's usually it's a pit braise really the barbacoa and you get maguey leaves and you wrap them like you would and you make little packages out of either maguey the the Part, uh, the sort of the skin of the maguey leaf and you wrap it all up and make little packages and it you braise it and it's wrapped in a package and it makes a great broth and delicious so anyway mm. so this is it's just it's garlic chiles anchos you use avocado leaves are they easy other to convos- find? Uh, yeah online now oh, the beauty yes. of online okay. but um, it's uh, they have sort of a an anise flavor which is a whole we could have a great conversation about anise flavors in Mexican cuisine and just salt and pepper very simple and you Basically what I did was I make a puree of the chilies and then use some of the chilies uh, soaked to wrap around the shanks or around the meat the way you would leaves. But how it all comes together is she got this recipe from friends of hers that were, which also tells you how sort of where people came together, the 60s in Mexico was so interesting, were there because of McCarthyism. They were American communists. And so this is my circles back to Trotsky and (laughs) La (laughs) Palapa via 1960s Mexico and refugees from McCarthyism artist communities in Mexico comes all the way back to you in New York and here I am with this recipe, which is simple and delicious and amazing. That's such a wonderful. So there you go. That's why I chose it. I didn't even know myself. <laughs> ah, well, these are the spirals that make life so interesting, yeah. and it all
1: comes back to food somehow. But yeah, how, how does the dish actually come together? And then you peel the So leaves off. so so and no. So you can no.
0: so basically, um, you take your meat and make just a delicious. You soak chiles anchos, puree them, salt, garlic, puree it wrap, marinate the meat in it for about eight hours, just like do a hours. paste, okay. mm-hmm. a paste, uh, no, no vinegar, no, ver- you know, no oil really just then, uh, I just use a pan and foil and stick it in the oven. And so then taking, putting the, re- leaving the shanks wrapped, then taking another, like at least one or two chiles per shank, um, uh, soaking them, splitting them open. So you have like a sh- little sheet, like mm-hmm. a little chili sheet, then you put them, uh, flesh side down to the meat and so it the outer skin of the ch- of the chile of the pepper um almost becomes a little package sort like a for package will help you around that. each shank and then just a little bit of water in the bottom mm. and of course salt and pepper you yes. know maybe a little um i don't really use much dark black pepper but a little bit of black pepper and salt and um, Any oil
1: at all? No, or just, just a little enough? bit of oil just mm-hmm. in the bottom of
0: pan, like, you know, three tablespoons for 20 anchos. I mean, very little oil. Um, it's mainly just the chili puree, and then it infuses the lamb. And I love to use the shanks because all those different areas of fat and surfaces make it really delicious. Like I say, <laughs> yeah, my mother liked to use shoulder. But also in Mexico in those days, you know, lamb was mutton, really. Uh-huh. You know, it's not so tender. So the shoulder was better use um and then i usually just do a layer of foil over and then the lid so it's just like a very tight you know dutch oven type braise where you know you're just doing i mean mexico you would do a dig a pit in the ground and do a pit barbecue (laughs) and line it with leaves and do this do this whole thing uh and what are you serving that delicious and what are we drinking oh well definitely having a little tequila for sure (laughs) Um, and why I not agave, it. Barbara?
1: I really don't know much about that culture of tequila
0: and agave. Mm-hmm. Can you just—is there a short well, way agave? Just? Is yes. not a cactus; it's a succulent. And uh, different. There are many that are fermented. They were for uh, the juice of the agave was fermented by the pre-Hispanic Mexicans as a like a agave beer pulque, which was a ceremonial drink. And then the Spaniards brought distillation. Uh, so it's once again, it's one of those delicious things of Mexico that has done a mestizaje, a melding of cultures uh, to make something delicious. They're always very good at finding the delicious (laughs) Um, and so it's very clean, it still tastes like the agave and it it really makes you, I do feel like it makes you feel different and then you could get into mezcal and tequila but they're all based on the succulent, different kinds of agaves um, I see. And uh, you know, they're a very clean distilled spirit. Anyway, with a lot with a good guacamole and tortillas, what and more could you want? Perfect, perfect, and you'll be able
1: to share that recipe with me. Yes, in mm-hmm. order to share it with everyone, that's so wonderful.
0: Very simple, so amazingly delicious, and it really when just thinking about it makes me feel homesick. Mm. So it's, uh, it's it'll be a pleasure, and as I say, you could, and it's also it's great to do it on chicken if lamb's not. You know, you can use the same it's paste a preparation. And you preparation, can for many you can things. use. On on anything that you want to see. I think like chicken thighs, it's great. Chicken thighs.
1: So thank you for that perfect segue about feeling homesick. Tell me what one woman kitchen means to you.
0: I think to me, it's that we have our own destiny. Mm. If you see kitchen as your home or kitchen as where you work, you know, we have control over that. We have an ability to grow that and to make it make that kitchen be a place of 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 wholeness.
1: Mm. How beautiful, as you know, I teach a class called the Language of Food at the new school, and you came one day t- to teach. I didn't share this with you, but of All of my guests, you were so much a favorite because of your great knowledge, your scholarship, your curiosity, putting the pieces together for all of them about attaching language and food and discovery and place and memory for them.
0: And they'll never forget it. It was was an honor to teach them.
1: It was on Mm -hmm. the contrary. They were fantastic. Thank you. They were wonderful. And I won't forget this conversation either. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thanks. Great to talk. I'll never think about Mexican food in the same way after spending time with Barbara talking about her restaurants and her career. This is Roseanne Gold, and thank you for joining Barbara and me in my kitchen. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold. And check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosangold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.